Welcome to episode 193 of Live Happy Now. This is your host, Paula Phelps, thanking you for joining us today. This week, we have a really special guest. Daniel Pink is a New York Times bestselling author, and with his latest book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, he takes a fresh look at how we make decisions. Now, we make decisions every day, and we ask ourselves what we need to do, how we're going to do it, and sometimes why we need to do it. But with this latest book, Daniel shows us how the way we time our decisions can change our days, our jobs, and even our relationships. Let's hear what he has to say. Daniel, thank you for joining us today on Live Happy Now. It's really a pleasure to have you here today on our show. It's great to be with you. Well, this, you know, you've looked at a topic that is something I don't think a lot of us have put a lot of thought into. Even though we are making decisions every day, we really don't look at timing. So what is it, though, that made you decide to start looking at the science of timing and how that affects us? Yeah, I think it was really more frustration than anything else because, you know, exactly as you say, I was making all kinds of timing decisions in my own life. When you know, I'm a writer, when should I do my writing? When should I exercise in the day? When should I start a project? When should I stop a project? And I was making those decisions in a very haphazard way that frustrated me. And I looked around for guidance, didn't find it. And then I started just said, hey, I wonder if there's any research on this topic. And it turned out there was a huge amount of research on this topic. <laughs> the challenge was that it was not in a single discipline. So it wasn't, it, there was some in psychology, but it wasn't only in psychology because there was some in economics and it was in anthropology and it was in molecular biology. And there's a whole field called chronobiology and it was in endocrinology and it was in anesthesiology. And all of these disparate fields were asking very similar questions. So what's the effect of time of day on how we feel, how we perform? How do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? And I mean, it took a long time to track through all the research. But once I did, I, I feel like this research offers clues about how to make these timing decisions in a smarter, shrewder way. And how does learning the power of when change the way that we make our decisions? You said we make them in a shrewder way, but how is that? Yeah, well, I mean, on just about every level. So if we think of, but I'll give you the most obvious one, which is that what a lot of research tells us, both in, again in psychology and in aspects of biology and in chronobiology and, and even in sociology, gives us, tells us this. Our brain power does not remain the same over the course of a day. It changes. It changes in, can change in very significant ways. It changes in predictable ways. And there are certain times of day when we are better at certain kinds of tasks. So simply knowing that and moving the right work to the right time can make a world of difference. Is it different for every person, though? I read so many things. I'm a night owl. I'm yeah. not a morning person at all. And I read so many things about you have to, no matter what, you have to get uh, up early. You have to do all these things. I'm so glad that you asked that because the idea that there is one size fits all is is nonsense. And this idea that the, that the secret to high performance is getting up insanely early is, 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 is nonsense. Here's what we know is this. So it begins with exactly what you're talking about, which is what's called a chronotype. Chronotype is our propensity. Do we wake up early and go to sleep early? Or are we like you? Do we wake up late and go to sleep late? Here's what the distribution looks like. About 15% of us are very strong morning people, larks. About 20% of us, people like you, are very strong evening people, owls. And about two-thirds of us are kind of in the middle. And what we know is that 
we tend to move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery, a peak, a trough, a recovery. A peak is when we're most vigilant. We're able to bat away distractions. The trough is usually in the middle of the day when there's a big, big drops in performance. And recovery is for most of us later in the day, late afternoon and early evening when we're better at doing creative kinds of work. Okay. So about 80% of us, people who aren't owls move through the day, peak trough recovery. And for them, the peak often occurs in the morning. It occurs at different times in the morning. It doesn't mean that everybody should get up before dawn. But in general, 80% of us reach our peak early in the day rather than late. However, 20% of us, people like you, are very, very different. Owls reach their peak, their cognitive peak, much later in the day, you know, evening, well into the evening. And so what we should be doing, whether we're a lark or an owl, is we should be doing our analytic heads down work during our peak, whenever it is. We should be doing our more creative work during our recovery period, which for, again, 80% of us is late afternoon and early evening. For owls, it's a little bit more, more, more complex. But what we need to do is do the right work at the right time regardless of our chronotype. And as exactly as you say, so I, I mean, I, I think that the corporate world certainly discriminates markedly against owls. Um, yeah, I, I was going to ask about that next. So I'm yeah. glad you're going into that territory. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the corporate world in, in many ways is, I, I think, trying explicitly to crush the souls and suck the life out of people like you. I mean, <laughs> and it goes against what the research tells us. What the research tells us is that people should be doing certain kinds of work during their peak. For a lot of us, that peak is the morning. For a fifth of us, including you, that peak is in the evening. And we should be doing our creative work uh, much more at different times of day. And also this midday trough between the early, you know, the early to mid-afternoon is there's rampant evidence that performance declines significantly during that period, significantly during that period. So you see it in education, test scores go down, you see it in healthcare, hospitals are dangerous places in that part of the afternoon, you see it in jury decision-making, you see it in judicial decision-making, you see it in corporate performance. And so the main thing we have to do is get synchrony between our type are we morning or afternoon people between our task? Is the work analytic or is it is it creative and the time of day? And once we put those things in alignment, we can do more work. We can do better work. We can be a little bit more satisfied. And what I love about your book is it kind of guides people through this so they can figure out like, oh, this is why I'm not doing well in my job because I'm trying to do this at this point in time or in my overall life. I'm not doing the timing right. And then you you can adjust it so it fits you instead of you're fitting into the schedules around you. Perfectly said. And that's exactly the takeaway from this is that, you know, especially when we have things like chronotypes. The goal is not to like we can't have some kind of magical conversion therapy to convert you from an owl into a lark. Okay, it doesn't work. I've tried. Way. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work that way because that's part of your. It's part of your biology. All right. It's like it's like complaining that somebody. Oh, you know, they're so frustrating to me because they're short. It's like okay, what are you going to do about that? <laughs> or he's so frustrating to me because he's tall. What? Okay, he's tall. What are you going to do about that? What do you do about when someone is short or tall? Is you is you adjust the environment to them. You don't try to elongate them or shrink them. You adjust the environment to them. And that's what we should be doing. So for people like like you, and, and owls are a very, very interesting population because there actually are personality differences between in the aggregate between owls and, and larks. You know, larks tend to be sort of very conscientious, extroverted. Owls actually tend to have more problems, things like depression and addiction. But 
owls also test higher on intelligence tests. They test higher on creativity. And so you have a lot of corporate structures that are missing out on one-fifth of the talent pool because they say, to work here, you have to be at an 8.30 a.m. staff meeting, which is a great way to basically say to the talented owls, oh, man, I don't want to work there. Right. You're going to weed all those out immediately. (laughs) You're going to lose one-fifth of the talent pool, which seems like a stupid idea to me. Well, and then you also, and I laughed out loud when I read this, you said that afternoons are the Bermuda Triangles of the day. And you alluded to that just a little bit ago, talking about how bad afternoons are. But I was shocked by what you wrote. Can you explain what you mean by them being the Bermuda Triangle and what they do to us? I'm glad you were shocked because that's the appropriate response. Uh, Let's take healthcare, for instance. You know, if your listeners learn nothing else from this conversation, I hope that they learn to avoid, if they can, going into the hospital or going to an important doctor appointment in the afternoon. The evidence is overwhelming. We know that uh, anesthesia errors are four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. We know that in colonoscopies, doctors find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams. Hand washing in hospitals diminishes incredibly in the afternoon. Uh, We know that doctors are more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in the afternoon. It's really, really bad. And that's because, as I said before, people's brain power, our brain power, other people's brain power doesn't remain static over the course of the day. It changes. You see it also, especially in education, where kids tend to be pretty larky. So with, but with kids, if you have this important research out of Denmark showing that If you have kids who are randomly assigned to take a standardized test, some take it early in the day, some take it in the afternoon, kids who take the test in the afternoon score as if they've missed two weeks of school. Kids who take elementary school students, again, very larky population, they, elementary school students, do better in math if they take math in the morning. They learn more, they have higher grades, they have better test scores. And unfortunately, when, you know, in schools and other institutions, we just don't take this question of when seriously enough, but it matters. It matters a lot. Well, and and now knowing that, say as a parent, what is their appropriate response? Because you can't say quit testing my child in the afternoon, but how do we work around knowing that this is our, our problem area? How do we work around that both at work, well, at home, well, and well, school? Well, here's the thing. Let's go back let's to schools for a second, because maybe we should say stop testing my kid in the afternoon. Maybe instead of having one day of testing, you should have two mornings of testing. So everybody's on an even playing field. The other thing, though, there's another remedy, which I'll talk about in a moment, or, or, or let's talk about math. When schools schedule classes, they think of it merely as a logistical exercise, and it's not. Certain things are better taught in the morning, and we're better off having things like math in the morning, especially for elementary school students. So it requires taking these when questions as strategic questions, not merely logistical questions. But there are other remedies, too, because you can't create a perfect situation. So in the Denmark example that I gave you, one of the remedies, and it was very effective, was breaks. If you give those afternoon test takers a 20 to 30 minute break to have a snack, run around a little bit on the playground, they actually get their scores back up. And this is part of a larger body of research on breaks as a performance enhancer. We have totally undersold the importance of breaks as a way to 
uh, maintain our mood, maintain our me- mental acuity. Breaks are much more important than we realize. Yeah, because we tend to think, well, I've got to power through this work day. And what you find and what you tell us is if you'll take a break and walk away from it for a bit, you're going to actually get more done in less time. Precisely. Precisely. We think that that the way to get – but that, that's our goal is to get more done, get more work done and better work done. And somehow we've been seduced by the belief that the way to do that is to power through, that powering through is is the pathway for getting more work done and better work done. And sort of like the morning people, like morning people, there's this idea that that, that early risers are morally superior also pervades <laughs> some of the and, and the same thing is true with like powering through is morally superior than taking a break. Both of those notions are nonsense. Absolute nonsense. You know, a lot of people believe that amateurs take breaks and professionals don't, when in fact, it's precisely 100% the opposite. Professionals take breaks, amateurs don't take breaks. Can you tell us what kind of impact that has? What kind of results did you see between people who took breaks and people who didn't? Oh, it's it's massive. So if we know that evidence from the, the standardized tests that taking tests in the afternoon brings those scores back up. We know that in in medicine, for instance, that having these these intentional vigilance breaks can dramatically reduce the number of medical errors. We know in hospitals where there, where I mentioned there was this big decline in hand washing inside of hospitals in the afternoon. One of the remedies for that was to give, especially the nurses, more breaks, but also particular kinds of breaks, social breaks, breaks with other nurses, because we know that the research is telling us that breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on our own. We know that breaks outside are better than breaks inside. We know that breaks we're removing are more effective than breaks where we're stationary. And so you see some also some interesting research. You, you might have covered some of the work of, of Andres Erickson in deliberate practice, which has been sort of uh, adjacent to some of the work in positive psychology. One of the things that he did in his study of high performers, in this particular case, violinists, is that the elite violinists took more breaks and longer breaks than the non-elite violinists. And so there's a lot of evidence. We have to start thinking of breaks differently. We have to start thinking of breaks as part of our performance rather than a deviation from our performance. That's what professional athletes do. Professional athletes, high-level musicians understand this. The rest of us need to start following their sterling example. And is that something you should schedule in at the beginning of your day? Like, go ahead. As you're planning out your day, say, I'm going to take this break. So, Or at least until you get used to taking a break so that you Uh, make yourself do it. I think so. I think that's a very good idea. In fact, that's what I do myself. Because, you know, it's, it's again, as we were talking about before, we don't have a culture of break taking. And so people will just neglect it. And one way to not neglect something is to schedule it. So I've actually done that myself in that each afternoon I try to include one specific break. So it'll be, it'll be you know, 3.30, uh, take a walk. And we're not talking about crazy you know, four-hour-long breaks or anything like that. We're talking about a 10-minute break to take a walk outside with someone you like talking about something other than work. That small step alone has been shown to improve the sharpness of our thinking, uh, restore our mood, give us a little bit more physical energy. And even like really, really simple, like there's, a, there's another line of research on what are called micro breaks, which are really, really short breaks. Even those are helpful. So one micro break that I like is the 20-20-20 exercise, which is good for people who are uh, working at a computer. And all it is, it's very simple. Every 20 minutes, 
look at something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. And even that can restore mental energy. Oh my, we can all do that. That That's so, not that hard. <laughs> it, to, to, every 20 minutes, look at something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. Yeah, we can all do that. And even that, these micro breaks matter, these micro breaks matter as well. And so what we have is these kinds of conventional wisdom that is just wrong, that powering through is better. Nope. That larks are morally superior to owls. Nope. <laughs> and so this is why we have science. So so we can take these things that we have intuition about, that we have folklore about, and say, which of these are true and which of these are not true? Yeah, you, you do a great job of upending a lot of our conventional wisdom that we it's not so wise. And the thing that I also loved is that you talk about napping. Oh, and... there's a lot there's a lot of research on napping, too. And naps are pretty good for us, except yeah. they, the, the ideal nap is, is remarkably short, shorter than I ever would have imagined would be effective. The ideal nap is between 10 and 20 minutes long. After 20 minutes or so, you begin to develop what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get. But super short naps are incredibly effective. And I know some people have gotten on that bandwagon. They, there's even certain companies that have nap pods and things yeah. like that. But if you work at a place where that's not supported, how can you still do that? Because I know people who, they're really tired during the day. They, yeah. they could really get that 10 minutes and benefit from it. How do they work that in? It's tough to do. You know, it's tough to do, especially in an open office. But if you have any, if there's any kind of space available, where you can just squirrel away for 25 minutes, it might be worth doing. Now, I happen to work in a small office by myself, so it's easy for me to do. But what I do, the way I, I approach this is, is I put on noise-canceling headphones, I sit in a comfortable chair, and I set my phone timer for 25 minutes. And I can, if, I, if I fall asleep in, say, 10 minutes, and the alarm goes off in 25, I've got a 15-minute nap that's right in that sweet spot of of nap length time. And what kind of difference does it make in you before and after a nap? You know, as silly as it sounds, as obvious as it sounds, I feel more awake. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have that kind of groggy period. And here's the thing. Our brain power doesn't stay the same throughout the day. It's, 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 it's really important. And you're in Nashville, right? I am. Okay, so let's talk about the predators, all right? Your hockey team, okay? Here's what naps are like, all right? The predators play the first period against whoever, the Washington Capitals or the Toronto Maple Leafs or whatever, okay? And then you look at the ice after the first period, all right? What does the ice look like? It's all scuffed up. It's chipped. It's messed up, all right? Then what happens? Some dude comes out in a Zamboni and smooths out the ice, all right? Naps are like that Zamboni, right? We get all these nicks and scuffs over the course of a day, a nap comes in and, and smooths that out. But again, it's not these long naps. It's not the nap that, you know, a six-month-old child takes. These 10 to 20-minute naps can be enormously effective. You're right, though, that in many cases, many companies really, 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 really look down on that. So if you're thinking about doing it, you know, be at least at the beginning, be discreet about it. So you're saying don't curl up under your desk and just <laughs> have at No, it. <laughs> certainly don't curl up on your desk. That's probably even worse. <laughs> well, one thing I do want to get to, and you know, we're, we're getting near the end of our time, so this is absolutely perfect, but I loved where you talk about the effect that endings have on our memories and our behavior. So can you spend a few minutes talking about why the way something ends is so important? Yeah, I mean, the why of it is actually complicated. I'm not sure we know precisely, but what we do know is that endings have a big effect on our behavior. Endings can help energize us. 
So when we see the end of something, it actually can enhance our motivation. We can kick a little bit harder. So there's some really interesting research showing that the age at which people run marathons, their first marathon, the age that people run their first marathon, the most common age is age 29. Another common age, 39, 49, 59. That there's something about coming to the end of that decade that gets people moving. So endings can help energize us. Endings have a big effect in how we encode experiences, how we evaluate experiences, how we remember them. And so in any kind of encounter, whether it's in a meeting or in a school setting or in a customer transaction, how that experience ends has a disproportionate weight on on people's evaluation of the whole experience. Uh, It's true even in how people evaluate entire lives. Uh, Someone who's led an exemplary life and in the last year turns out to, you know, does something bad versus somebody who has led a pretty scandalous life and in the last year does something good. Those people, the research shows, are generally evaluated about equal because uh, goodness in the last year of life, people think reflects the overall character. Badness in the last year of life, people say reflects their own, the people's overall character because endings have this disproportionate effect on how we evaluate things. So knowing that, how do we apply that in our own situations, whether it's the end of a day, it's the end of a relationship, it's the end of a meeting? Yeah. So I think one of the things is to be intentional about it. So let's take the end of a day. In positive psychology has some very interesting things on this as well. The end of a day, we should be intentional about the end of a day. We should have some kind of small ritual at the end of the day. What I do Uh, and it's consistent with a lot of the work of Teresa Mabile at Harvard Business School, is at the end of every day, I actually write down what I got done. I write down my progress. Uh, We know that progress is the single biggest day-to-day motivator on the job. And so by ending the day, by marking my progress, I have a sense of satisfaction and a little bit more motivation the next day. Another thing that, that people can do at the end of the day is Thank somebody. Express gratitude at the end of the day. That'll leave you, that'll boost your mood and encode the entire day in a more positive light. This is such a fantastic book. There are so many things to talk about with it. Uh, it's, it's too bad we only have 30 minutes to do this. So what is the one thing, though, that you hope readers will take away from reading this book? You know, I hope that they'll be conscious of time, that, you know, you and I are temporal creatures, right? We, we talk about a biological clock. We have biological clocks in every cell in our body. Uh, we're always moving through time, right? You know, yesterday was the past, tomorrow is the future. And so if we're aware of that, and if, if we're intentional about what we do, when we do stuff in the course of a day, if we're intentional, as we were talking about before, about constructing meaningful endings, if we're aware of the effect of midpoints on our lives, we're just going to feel better and do better. But the the first step is really awareness. Perfect. Well, Dan, we're going to tell people in just a couple minutes how they can get your book, where they can learn more about it, give them some links to get more familiar with what you're doing. And I just I thank you for coming on and I thank you for writing this book. Well, thanks you for thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. That was Daniel Pink, the author of When: The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. You can find out more about Daniel and where to buy his book by visiting us at livehappynow.com. We hope you're already a subscriber to Live Happy Now, but if you're not, you can find us on the Pandora Podcast Network, as well as Spotify, iHeartRadio, and on iTunes and Google Play. Just find us on your favorite platform and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. 
that is all we have time for this week. So we'll meet you back here again next week for an all new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.